Let's humble ourselves before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we thank you so much for this Shabbat day that you have given us. We thank you for giving us a day every week to set aside in our lives, to concentrate on you, to dwell just on the things that you have given us, on your word. We thank you for fellowship, Father. And uh, we just pray that you would be with us all as we continue to study your word. We ask this prayer in Yahshua's name. Amen. Hallelujah. May be seated. So today we're going to start in Genesis 15. We're just going to crack open the scriptures right away here. Starting in verse 1, it says that after these, <clears throat> after these things, the word of Yahweh came to Avraham in a vision, or Avram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Avram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Avram said, O Adonai Yahweh, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Avram said, Since you have given me no or since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall shall your descendants be. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he reckoned it it to him as righteousness. So the chapter begins with Yahweh telling Abraham, who at this point, point is still Abram or Avram, that he will give him an heir to inherit all of his possessions in which he had been blessed with. Even though he was an old man, and at this point, his wife well, was well beyond the years of bearing children. While it seemed impossible to him, Abraham believed Yahweh, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, it says. Let's keep reading. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Adonai Yahweh, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them into two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Avram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Elohim said to Avram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." It came to be about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So not only did Yahweh promise to give Avraham heirs, but he also promised to give his descendants the land, Hararetz to have as an inheritance, but it wasn't going to be easy or immediate. Sure, 
Isaac dwelled securely in the land. But for Jacob and his sons, and the next few generations after them, they were all sojourners, traveling to foreign lands. They were serving others, slaves to the Egyptian system. And not until 430 years after Yahweh made this covenant with Avraham that his seed entered the promised land again. I believe that everything within scripture is cyclical, that everything within life is cyclical. It's the basis of creation. And when we study these things, we can learn from the past to understand what may be coming in the future. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10 says that which has been is that which is which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new, already it has existed for ages, which were before us. We have the daily cycle of the sun rising and setting. We have the weekly um, Shabbat cycle. We have the monthly cycle of the moon, the yearly cycle of the feasts and seasons. We have the seven-year sabbatical cycle and the jubilee cycle. These natural cycles sustain the creation And we are given the Sabbaths and feasts to celebrate with creation and the abundance that it provides. They help us stay in tune with the the cycles of creation if we seek to. I also believe that there is a larger prophetic cycle that exists within Scripture and within life. While it may not be as um, as easily seen and recognizable, it is still there. The most obvious of this cycle is that of the Exodus. And the fact that there will be a larger, a second exodus to come. Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15 says, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be said, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel, the land of Mitzrayim, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he has banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. We see that at the end of this second exodus, there will be a restoration to the land. That is the land that was promised to Abraham back in um, Genesis 15, this inheritance. I think that because of this promise of what is to come, many have become apathetic to the land that they are in and uh, the creation as it stands now. Why should we care about the earth and what's in it when he's going to take us out of here? Or if he's going to make a new heaven, a new earth, then what does it matter what we do to this one? However, I'm going to bring up two scriptural proofs of why we should care and then ask a very important question. The first scriptural example I have is uh, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Starting in verse 14, it says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained you five more. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Switch there. Yep. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received it back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The moral of this parable is we will be judged by what we do with what we are given right now. I believe this means both physically and spiritually. And actually, to me, these two things are inseparable. Because Yahweh created all things. He created the physical or natural world around us, including our bodies, which are the vessels for the breath of life in which he breathed into us, Genesis 2-7. And in doing that, he made the two one. And what we do in the physical affects the spiritual and vice versa. What we do in the spiritual affects our physical life. So if he gave us the earth to live on now, and if we treat it with violence by polluting, degrading, and destroying the land or participating in a system that does, is our master going to say to us, well done, or will he call us a wicked slave? This brings me to the second scripture. Revelations 11, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Adon and his master, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before Elohim fell on their faces and worshipped Elohim, saying, We give you thanks, O Yahweh Elohim, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. We are Yahweh's bond servants, bound to him, bound to the land that he created us, created for us to dwell on. We are to be living life now as if it is the kingdom of Elohim. Just, I'm not going to go to them, but just jot down Matthew 3, 2 and Luke 17, 21 and look at, read them, study them on your own time. Since this is the case, we should be working as servants, improving the land and also, but more, and more importantly, the spiritual condition of those around us to build up the kingdom of Yahweh. I believe that the evil one has done a good job of separating the spiritual from the natural to be able to tear down the kingdom, because that is how he operates. He must first divide, and then he can conquer. So if we continue to think and treat the natural world like it is separate from the spiritual, 
We are only feeding into the lie of the enemy. And if we continue to think that our physical body is separate from our soul, we are not working toward the restoration of all things. See Acts 3.21. As the agrarian essayist Wendell Berry puts it in his essay, The Body and the Earth, he says, Divided, set against each other, body and soul drive each other to extremes of misapprehension and folly. Nothing could be more absurd than to despise the body and yet yearn for its resurrection. It's from the Art of Commonplace, the agrarian essays, essays of Wendell Berry. Berry goes on in his essays and throughout his essays to show the interconnection of all things as, create, as creation of Elohim. And since all things are connected, you can't harm the earth without harming other people. When agricultural, industrial, and mining practices all harm the earth through pollution, depletion, and erosion of the soil, they are all violence against the soil. When the health of the soil affects the health of those who live on it, who live on, near, or consume all the products that come from the soil, you are committing violence against those that depend on this soil. Therefore, you are not fulfilling the command to love your neighbor as yourself when you engage in practices that are detrimental to the earth, soil, air, and water. Not that agriculture, building, and harvesting of natural resources is wrong, but they should all be done in sustainable ways at a scale that are appropriate to the actual needs of the inhabitants, not to exploit all the resources from future generations and export them around the world for current corporate income and gain. So with all that being said, what kind of heritage are we leaving our children? What kind of faith are we passing on to them? Are we bringing them up in the way? Are we preparing them to survive in a world that is hostile to the faith? Are we teaching them the word when we sit in our houses, walk along the way, when we rise up and lie down? What kind of lifestyle are we leaving for our children? Are we trying to build up an inheritance for our children that will hold the family together in a faith-focused community and family group, something like the Amish or the Mennonite? Or are we just preparing our children to fall in line with the beast system? And as a larger community and as a country as a whole, what kind of world are we leaving to those that come after us? Are we going to use up all the resources now so that there's nothing left for future generations? Are we going to deplete the topsoil so that future generations will struggle to grow food? Are we going to continue to poison the earth and pollute it with needless toxins and chemicals contained in the herbicides, pesticides, and pharmaceuticals that we tend to you know, inject into everything, whether it be at the earth or our bodies. When it comes to our children, are we instructing them in paths of righteousness? I believe that as servants of Messiah, this is one of our highest callings. In fact, I believe, <clears throat> I believe that it is the highest calling. Paul, in his pastoral letters, states that someone who does not have his children in check, that if they are not following in the faith, or if they are unruly, Titus 1.6, that that, that that man is not fit for leadership within the assembly. And according to 1 Timothy 3.4, his children are to be subject in subjection with all gravity. If we don't have the means to leave our children any kind of worldly material inheritance, we can at least work to pass them on a faith that is worth living, a faith that is centered in Yahweh and his instruction in the word. As a father with one child that is not yet a teenager, I can only actually offer a limited amount of advice. 
But based on my life experiences, here are some things that we can and should be doing to raise our children in the way. First off, we should read scripture to them daily or with them daily. Get into a daily routine of family reading. This is easier for homeschool families as it should be part of their daily curriculum. Look for a daily devotional that you can do with your family. We were doing one every evening with our son. It's called Boyhood and Beyond, Practical Wisdom for Becoming a Man by Bob Schultz. It has been really good for our family, and you know I'm learning from it as well. We should also be encouraging our children to read through the psalm, you know, read something themselves, whether it's a psalm or proverb, every day. Just try to, you know, have some kind of daily reading, daily personal devotional for our children. The second thing that we can do as parents is heed the proverb and not spare the rod and spoil the child. Approach correction with love, calmly, never in anger or fury. Offer correction to your children and back it up with scripture. Discuss their negative action with them and show them where in Scripture it's considered sin or it's inappropriate behavior. The third thing we need to do is make sure we're starting from a young age and be consistent, whether it's readings, devotion, or discipline. If we are not consistent with our children, will they actually take us seriously? The fourth thing I believe we can do is homeschool if you can. From my own personal experience, the most negative influence our children are exposed to is from the public school system. I mean, as a child growing up in the public school system, I can, that, that's my belief. Um, and it, it comes from other students, from the pressures they seek, but anymore it's from the teachers and the, um, the system itself, the, the things they want to teach our kids in school. The next thing, the fifth thing you can do, I might hear some, get some feedback against this one, but get rid of your TV. You know, we call it in our house a black mirror because it never got turned on, and when we left our last house, we left it hanging on the wall and didn't even take it with us. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever watch. We have a tablet, you know, so we watch things on the tablet, but um, it's, not, it's not the center point of our, of our daily life. Um, sitting in our living room around right now around our, our wood stove is our centerpiece, you know, that's, and sitting there reading scripture, that's replaced the TV. We don't even miss it. Sixth thing is get your kids off of social media. They don't belong there. In my opinion, really none of us do. It's just a sewer, if you ask me, and the, the late Rush Limbaugh would always say that at Twitter. That's just a sewer. I don't even go there. Um, seventh and last, I kind of ended this on seven, is we need to be a positive influence to our children. We need to lead by example. How do we expect our children to act righteously if we don't? We need to live by the Torah and show the fruit of the Spirit. If we are not fruitful in our faith, Why would our children even want to follow us? We need to lead them with love and patience in the spirit of Yahshua. Now, switching gears to lifestyle and community, because because in this age of progress and the progress that man has made in the past centuries, the thought has developed that solutions within our daily lives can only come from the future, from some sort of yet developed technology or, or discovery that is yet to be made. And that will answer all of our problems. No one ever stops and looks for solutions to life's problems from the past, from history, from the way things used to be done. Mainly, that is because there's no gain in that for the industrial economy. They need something new to sell to the public to ensure that they will make more money. A case in point, an extreme case in point in this, is the mission to Mars. So according to Elon Musk, who has SpaceX, 
um, and many other people that, that side with him, um, we need to be looking to Mars because, quote, it is essential for the future of humanity. And also, quote, he says that we need to establish a permanent presence on Mars in order to ensure the survival of our species. This is according to an article from CelebrityObserver.com. Also, according to an article that was found on the World Economic Forum, to date, NASA has spent $16.1 billion in rover missions to Mars. And this is a few years old, so this is like even before the most recent ones. And on NASA's own website, they have set a goal to have a manned mission to the Mars by the early 2030s. That will cost who knows how much. They don't even put the price tag on there. But if it's any indication, during the 1960s, NASA spent $21.4 million to get to the moon. Adjusted to U.S. dollars in 2019, that would be about $165 billion. That was just to get to the moon. Now we're talking going way beyond that. To me, it's just insanity to waste all of that money, time, fuel, and other resources just to go to some distant rock planet that can't even, doesn't even have the basic elements that are needed to support our life. There's no air, no topsoil, no flowing water. There's not even the basic essentials of life with, that Yahweh created for us. They're all here, you know, but they all want to go there, all for the hope that we're going to find some resources or, you know, the earth is going to be destroyed. And the only way we can live is if, you know, if a couple people can be on Mars while earth gets destroyed, at least, you know, the human species can survive. To me, it's like living here in Missouri and saying we've got to go all the way out to the Nevada, not Nevada, out just west of where I live, Nevada, Missouri, but we've got to go all the way out to the Nevada desert to look for water to drink. Never mind how much time and fuel that's going to take to get there and how hard it's going to be to find water once you get to the desert. All you have to do is walk over and turn on the tap and you have water. Why are we, why are we running to Mars for another, you know, it's just, it's an excess, but it's, to me it's just, <clears throat> it's the mindset of, of the modern day world, and it makes no sense to me. If the time, money, and energy, and the genius minds that are spent trying to figure out how to get to Mars and get back were directed and used to solve our problems here, the pollution, the food problems we have, the resource problems here on Earth, and maybe they would actually help things instead of just contributing to the problem because all they're doing is, is wasting valuable resources. Yahweh gave us everything that we need to survive right here, and he commanded us to dwell upon the land. We need to return to him fully. I've quoted it before, and I'm going to quote it again. Jeremiah 6.16, Thus says Yahweh, stand by the ways and see, ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The answers to all the lives' problems and questions are found in the ancient paths, but the beast system refuses to walk in them. In fact, I believe that it is the intent of the beast system to destroy our inheritance. That has been the evil one's goal ever since the garden. Hasatan wants to take what Yahweh has given to us because of greed and envy. Whenever Yahweh gives, <clears throat> whatever Yahweh gives for life, Hasatan wants to take from us because he desires death. So if he can sow the weed seeds of greed in man's heart, man will be more than happy to destroy the earth for personal gain, to deplete the topsoil by overusing the land, poison the soil and the water with chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides, increase erosion and industrial farming practices, strip large tracts of the earth in search of valuable mineral, 
minerals with no plan to restore the land or control the toxic waste that results. And they're happy to use up all the resources now so that there's little for the future generations. The actions of the industrial elite and the way they live their lives remind me of the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah 22, starting in verse 12, it says, Therefore, in that day, Yahweh of Elohim, Yahweh Elohim of hosts, called you to weeping and wailing, to shaving the head and wearing sackcloth. Instead, there was gaiety and glad- gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. That's the mentality of the beast system, to worry about ourselves now and not to have any concern about the future generations and the kingdom to come. Luke 12 also comes to mind, too. Luke 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me to be judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. And he told them a parable, excuse me, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began to reason to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease and drink and be merry. But Elohim said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward Elohim. So first off, in the this passage, I'm guessing that the man in the crowd in the crowd in the beginning at verse uh, 13 there was a younger brother because we know traditionally that the inheritance went to the firstborn. While the younger son did receive some inheritance from their father, think of the story of the prodigal son uh, when he asked for his portion of the inheritance. However, the main estate, the lands and herds, would go to the oldest son. In this case, it seems that the younger brother wanted to be, ha- you know, the younger brother here wanted it to be an even cut. But Yahshua tells him it, he's not the arbitrator of this matter. That's just, that's in his father's hands. That's up to his father. In this parable, Yahshua is trying to make a point. Going on in the parable, Yahshua is trying to make a point that it shouldn't matter the quantity of what we receive. It's what we do with it that matters in the long run. Being rich toward Elohim. It's to pay our tithes. It, being rich towards Elohim is paying our tithes and offerings to care for the stranger, the widow, orphan, and the poor. To care for others, not ourselves. That is what the children of the kingdom are called to do. I also find it interesting in verse 16 that the parable begins with, The land of a rich man was very productive. Productive land is ultimately a blessing from Yahweh, and the man should have rejoiced in it. And while we can do things to improve the soil, and, and <clears throat> it, is still this, it is still all from Yahweh. And if we treat the soil well and give it its prescribed rest and rotation, the soil will continue to be productive as long as the earth exists. So the need for bigger barns was really not necessary. He could have filled his existing barns, sold or given away the surplus, 
and counted on the productivity of the land to continue to produce for the years to come, trusting in Yahweh. I believe that many of the curses of Revelation are a direct reaction to the actions of the industrial beast system. The first one that comes to mind is the famine of the third seal in Revelation 6, 5 and 6, because the industrial agriculture system is based upon monocultures of primarily grain crops. The food system is based around cheap production of these grains. When the crops fail due to depleted soil, drought, pests, and other adverse, you know, adverse weather con- conditions or any other act of Elohim, the famines will be widespread. This is why building our own food systems is important. And this is only the beginning of things to come. When we see food shortages and soaring prices, we know what is on its way. When we, if we look then in uh, <clears throat> Revelation 7, starting in verse 1, it says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living Elohim. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our Elohim on their foreheads. So one may ask, Why does Yahweh want to harm the earth, the sea, and the trees if he created them for us? Well, that's a fair question. To the student of the scriptures, it should be obvious. Because the day of tribulation and judgment has come upon the earth. And because he has given us the earth as an inheritance, yet the world has despised it. They've despised their inheritance, just much like the prodigal son. They have traded their inheritance for luxurious living and sin. So Yahweh will take away what he has given. If we won't care for it and honor and treasure it, he will destroy it so that we know how helpless we are as humans without the things that he created for us. This verse should be a herald to us. It should inspire us to work hard at becoming his bondservants, a bondservant of Messiah bound to him, to the land, and willing to lay down our worldly lives and serve him. Let's turn over now to chapter 8 of Revelation, starting in verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. This will be devastating. Can you imagine a third of the earth being burned up? The impact that it will have on timber for building, on fruit trees, and the pasture and crops. Thayer's Greek lexicon brings more clarification to the word for grass. It actually means herbage, hay, and can refer to growing crops. So if if I'm reading this correctly, it's saying that all the crops will be destroyed, which is a direct strike at the industrial agricultural system. While we're talking about tribulation and things being burned up, I want to take a quick look, <clears throat> quick look at Luke 23, starting in, um, well, Luke 3.31, but we're going to actually start in verse 26. And to set this up quickly, this was when Yahshua <clears throat> was bearing the stake on his way to be put to death. Picking up in verse 26, it says, When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the stake to carry behind Yahshua. 
And following him was a large crowd of the people, <clears throat> of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Yahshua, turning to them, said, Daughters of Yerushalayim, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things to the green, or when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? I've often pondered the meaning of what Yahshua is saying in this verse. But recently I read a short article that shed some light on it, and now it makes much more sense. In Yahshua's time, there was a scriptural interpretation method known as Kal Vahamur, meaning from the minor to the major, or how much more. Within this interpretation, many analogies to the physical natural world were made. And in this case, the green trees actually represented a righteous person because it is alive. And dry wood represents a wicked person being dead in their trespasses. This makes complete sense and is actually a great comparison with Revelation 8-7. A younger green tree is able to withstand a forest fire. While a dead, dry tree will burn up, a young green tree can bend under pressure, while a dry, dead tree will break. While we will face this tribulation to come, we will be able to withstand it. And Yahshua is saying here that if it is bad for the righteous person, how much more will sinners have to suffer? With that, let's turn back to Revelation. Verse 8, we'll pick up, and says, The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Next, we see the sea is struck. A large part of the world is dependent on, on fish and other seafood for their food. This will add to the famine. It also says that a third of the ships will be destroyed. This is a strike at the beast system of commerce, as all the shipping and trade is done across the oceans. I could keep going on through Revelation to show how all the plagues are a direct response to some part of the beast system. Just like the plagues of the Exodus were a direct attack on the different deities of Egypt. But I think you may be, hopefully you're getting the point. And I'd like to switch back now to our main focus of the inheritance. Psalm 16 Verses 3 and 6 says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who have bartered for another mighty one will be multiplied. I shall not, pow- I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is, in beautiful, is beautiful to me. He's talking about the, the boundary lines. You know, the, they're falling within a beautiful place. And this is the one thing that I want us all to remember from this. That Yahweh is an portion of our inheritance. And what lies beyond this current age and the kingdom to come is far more than what we can ever imagine here and now. Like I said earlier, with the parable of the talent, so we must show ourselves worthy of what we have been given now. 
We must also show ourselves faithful of the smaller, littler things entrusted to us now so that we may be worthy of the bigger, larger things in the kingdom to come. Right? It's the principle that we just talked about, from the minor to the major. Now, someone might come up to me afterwards and say, Joshua, this is all great about this whole earthly inheritance and taking care of the earth and all the things like that, but Yahweh is my inheritance, so why am I concerned about any kind of earthly things? Well, I know that Revelation 20, verse 6, says that those who are part of the first resurrection are to be priests to Yahweh. I don't know how this would disconnect us from the natural world that Yahweh creates, both now and in the kingdom. Some may say that priests, or the Levites more specifically, do not get an inheritance. While they were not apportioned their own territory, they did receive towns. And they did receive lands around these towns, along you know, a certain amount of common land, for them to be able to grow for their own, their own sustenance. And that land, the priests' pasture and fields around their towns, were not to be sold. So it would always be an inheritance for their children. If we look in Leviticus 25, starting in 32, it says, Notwithstanding the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possessions, may the Levites redeem at any time. And if a man purchases of, a, of the Levites, then the house that was sold and the city of his possession shall go out in the year of Jubilee. For the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the fields of the suburbs and of their cities are not to be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. We'll look at this, uh, we'll look at the inheritance of the Levites in the kingdom in just a little bit. Also, just because we may become priests doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about the creation. In fact, I believe it's the exact opposite. Because if I'm polluting and defiling the land, which will become the inheritance of another, if I'm, then I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. And therefore, I'm not even worthy of being called a priest. With all that being said, I'd like to remind everyone what Yahshua said about our inheritance. Or inheritance. Matthew 5, 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, to earth, the, inherit the earth. And Matthew 19.28, Yahshua said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. So according to Yahshua, we can look forward to an internal inheritance of the earth. I cannot begin to imagine how awesome this will be. I look forward to it longingly. I seek to work toward that with every fiber of my being. I believe that we will be an active part in this regeneration, or as some translations put it, the renewal of all things. If we are his servants, I would think that we would be the ones to carry out this renewal on the earth. I can only dream about how wonderful that soil will be in the kingdom. Deep, rich topsoil loaded with nutrients, all, everything needed to grow big, large, um, lush plants yielding a hundredfold. A place and an inheritance where no one will hunger or thirst. 
a place where no one lacks shelter or clothes or any basic need, where shalom exists between man and beast alike, where love and unity exists in the community of Messiah. However, I feel right now we are all Israel wandering in the des- desert, waiting for our inheritance, hoping for the things to come. We should be preparing to come into our inheritance looking at ourselves, our lives, to make sure that we are living according to his word and not contrary to it, so as not to be rejected as one he never knew, to die in the wilderness like the faithless generation that did not believe that Yahweh could drive out the inhabitants of the land for their possession. Keep in mind the charge that Yahweh gave to Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 6, says, Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written therein. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For Yahweh your Elohim is with you wherever you go. So there's a song we know that that goes right to that scriptural verse, and it's actually hard to read it without almost singing the song, but... I believe that Joshua, son of Nun, is very strong, is a very strong foreshadowing of Joshua the Messiah. There are too many comparisons to make right now, but I want to concentrate and focus on Joshua leading the Israelites into the land, into their inheritance, and Joshua returning to fully establish Yahweh's kingdom here on earth and give us our portion of our inheritance. In John 14, <clears throat> Verses 2 and 3 says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Some will twist this verse to say that when we die, we're all going to go to heaven, where Yahshua has a mansion there for us, and we can float around on the clouds playing the harp. However, a critical look at the text will reveal something entirely different, something that is actually in line with the rest of Scripture, if you can imagine that. The Greek word translated as dwelling place or mansion is mone, and Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the word as a staying, abiding, dwelling, or an abode. Looking back at the verse, we can see that Yahshua is saying that in Yahweh's house or in his kingdom, there are many dwelling places or places for us. And he says that he is coming back to receive us so that may, may, he may be where we, he is. Well, according to the prophets, he will be here on earth in the millennial kingdom. We know that <clears throat> what he teaches us in, his ma- in the master's prayer, that his kingdom will be here on earth, Matthew 6.10. And in Ezekiel 45, it describes the location and size of the center of this kingdom. Ezekiel 45, verses 1 through 6 say, And when you divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an allotment to Yahweh, a holy portion of the land, 
The length shall be the length of 25,000 cubits, and the width shall be 20,000. It shall be holy within all its boundaries, boundary round about. Out of this, there shall be for the holy place a square round about 500 by 500 cubits, and 50 cubits for its open space round about. From this area, you shall measure a length of 25,000 cubits and a width of 10,000 cubits, and it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to Yahweh. And it shall be a place for their houses, and a place and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 cubits in width shall be for the Levites, the ministers of the house. And for their possession, cities to dwell in. You shall give the city possession, you shall give the city possession of an area 5,000 cubit wide and 25,000 cubit long, alongside the allotment of the holy portion. It shall be for the whole house of Israel. So you got that? Everybody got that picture in their mind, what that looks like? In case, in case you don't, here's a, <clears throat> here's a little map that may depict the area of the inheritance during the Millennial Kingdom. So you can take note. Let me see, does this pointer work? Maybe, maybe not. No. But anyhow, if you look, the white in the middle, um, that's the holy portion. And then I think this one kind of shows a little bit more. We should have zoomed it in. But in the center there, there's, there's a portion for the sanctuary. There's a portion for the priests. Just Google Ezekiel 45, and uh, you can look at it a little closer. And... Um, you know, see the portions of the inheritance, or at least the interpretation, but this would be the size out around Jerusalem that's set apart for the priests. Much of the land that are to be allotted as an inheritance, so we only talked about the inheritance um, of the priests, really read that, but within that it, it shows the inheritance of all the tribes and how they lay out across the land. But much of this allotted area is currently desert. And I always wondered how involved we will be as his bondservants in greening these deserts. Isaiah 34, <clears throat> 16 and 17, and we're actually going to go over into Isaiah 35 as well, just keep reading right through, says, Seek from the book of Yahweh and read. Not one of these will be missing. Not one will lack its mate. From his mouth, for his mouth has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it to them by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they will dwell in it. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah, or the desert, will rejoice or rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our Elohim. These verses match up with that of Ezekiel 45. And I think that the desert will rejoice because we will be dwelling in it, caring for the land, building up its soil, and giving it the joy of a woman who was once barren, but now has children when she is mature of age. I really don't know exactly how all of this will look, nor how it will happen. And I certainly do not know when it will happen. Like what Yahshua says, no one knows the time or the hour except the Father in heaven. We can speculate. We can look at the clues that Scripture gives us. 
All the apostles had the same question and expectation. Master, when is this kingdom going to come? But all we can do is listen to the advice of the master and watch. And while we watch, we can work on building his kingdom and our own little corner of the world. While it isn't easy, radical change is needed. It needs to be nonviolent, radical change from the bottom up, starting with the small details in our lives that we have control of. Every action we take, every purchase we make, <clears throat> we should be considering how this affects, how it affects the inheritance of those to come after us. If Yahshua does tarry for a while longer and we don't do anything now, what will our children have to inherit? Proverbs thirteen twenty two says, A good man leads an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So what are we leaving our children? I pray that this message was a blessing to you, and that you will meditate and consider every aspect of your life, and more than anything, that you will fear Yahweh and seek Him. And I will leave you with this. Psalm 25, 12 and 13 says, Who is the man who fears Yahweh? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. May Yahweh bless you.